0: going to read verses 3 through 10 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering since it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Let's pray. Father, we have been studying this portion for several weeks. I do pray that you would speak to us today out of it by the working of your Holy Spirit and Through the living word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 5 through 9, Paul is confirming that God's justice is justice for all. And I think that's an important point. God's justice is for those who persecute and afflict Christians. And it's for those Christians who are persecuted and afflicted. However, and I do want to point this out, though the persecutors see only one side of God's justice, the persecuted Christians see three. First, the persecuted Christians see God's justice in a way that purifies them so that they will be considered worthy of his kingdom. Verse 5. The second side that they see is the side that makes right the wrongs that have been done to them by relieving their suffering and bringing them into the safety and peace of God's eternal kingdom. Verse 6. And the third side that the persecuted Christians see of God's justice is God's retribution or punishment or vengeance on those who persecuted and afflicted them. Verses 7 through 9. Going back to verse 6 For after all it is only just or since it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you I want to ask this question Is God's justice only meted out and experienced by righteous and unrighteous alike after the return of Christ? I suppose it could seem that way Having to wait for God to act is not an easy thing to do. But the answer to my question is no. However, we are not told in either 1st or 2nd Thessalonians if or how God afflicts those who persecute Christians in this life. Does God just stand back and watch it happen and do nothing in response? In my opinion, we can reasonably assume that the persecutors experience in their own character, in what they believe and value, and in the way they live. And by the way, just those three areas have a profound effect on how you live your life and what you experience in life. So I think we can reasonably assume that the persecutors experience in their own character, in what they believe and value, and in the way they live, the natural consequences of thinking in such evil, hateful ways, and of searing their conscience, and of harboring such ill will toward people, people much like themselves, and of justifying such intentional cruelty for those whose only wrong is being a Christian. Can you do evil like that without damaging yourself? I don't believe you can. And that's part of God's justice, reaping what we sow. In addition, I think it is reasonable to assume God sets himself against the individuals, the people groups, and even the religious groups. And, of course, let's add the political parties of our day who persecute and afflict his own people, just as he set himself against the nations and people groups that mistreated the Israelites. So, even though we may never get a clear glimpse of God's avenging persecuted Christians in this life, There is still some activity going on, naturally, and I also believe in God setting himself against. It isn't a full justice, there is no question about it, but it is at least actions that are in place that people experience who persecute believers. We see in verses 6 through 9 that the persecuted Christians and the persecutors of Christians will ultimately, clearly, and fully experience God's justice at the return of Christ. And the justice administered at that time will extend throughout eternity. One of the things that we should be keenly aware of is once we cross the line of death, there there can be no changes made in the outcome of our life. That's the final door. The reality is Christians who are persecuted and afflicted for their faith will most likely have to wait for Christ to return. That's the reality. For full justice to be done. They're going to have to wait for Christ's return before Clearly seen and fully experiencing God's justice. Imagine being burned at stakes, on and two, uh, fed to the lions, put in prison and and forgotten about and left there until you finally die. You're in a cell. You can see nothing else but the walls of the cell. Will you see justice? No, you'll never see it. You either die before it takes place, or you're unable to see it. But one day it will be visible. And that's at the return of Christ. A realistic example of this kind of waiting, and I do want to read this portion of Revelation because I think we should be honest about how challenging it is to wait for God to bring justice. A realistic example of this kind of waiting is spoken of in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and here's what it says. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long will they live as if they've done nothing wrong? And there was given to each of them a white robe. Notice the next words. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. How long? Longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Just an example of this, which isn't anything close to what they experienced. Many years ago, as a pastor in a church and having children, and having grown up in the church and been the last one to leave on a Sunday morning or Sunday night, when the kids would come and say, When can we go, Dad? How much longer are we going to be here? I decided that the answer should be, Longer than you'd like. That's the reality. How long until we see God's justice? Probably longer than we'd like. That's the reality of it. Though God's justice is rarely swift, one of the scriptures that at least speaks to me and gives me a better understanding of God and and a better understanding of the reality that we live in is that his patience is not for lack of caring or wanting justice to be done. Second Peter chapter three, verses eight through nine tells us God is patient towards sinners in hopes that they will come to their senses, turn from their wicked ways, and live a life of godliness. In hopes. In the story that was read to the children today, we heard of a man in his, what was he, 70 or in his 70s? And he'd only been a believer for a short number of years. That means all those years before he lived as a sinner, God allowed him to live, why? In hopes that he would come to his senses and repent. Those of us who have come to our senses, who have entered into a life of faith in Christ and I've gotten to know God in this personal way. It is a blessing. But let us never be so careless or proud or foolish as to not want salvation for the people around us, even if it takes longer than we would like. The harsh reality of life is some things won't change for the better in our lifetime we might be put to death for our faith. Or we might have to endure persecution and affliction until death sets us free. In some situations, and for some of us, God's clear and obvious justice toward our persecutors will be delayed until the return of Christ. However, and this is a point... I hope you can understand and I urge you to buy into. So though some things may never change for the better in your lifetime or in my lifetime, we can. We can change. And this is an important truth. And this truth applies across the board, not just to persecuted Christians. Christians but to your life, where you are, in the home you're in, in the family you're in, uh, in the community you're in, in the job you're in, in the church you're in. Though nothing or some things never change in your lifetime, you can. God's word and the experience of believers down to the ages tell us that in spite of our circumstances, and often because of our circumstances, and we heard that as a testimony today, because of our circumstances, we can become new creatures in Christ Jesus who are progressively being conformed to the likeness of Christ. We can become partakers of the divine nature. We can change. We can take on the mind of Christ so that we think and respond to people and life situations like Him. We can break free from fear, worry, and anxiety so that we live each day with an inward peace and a joy that surpasses human comprehension. We can change. We can love our enemy. We can bless those who persecute us. We can pray for those who mistreat us. Your troubles may not be removed. may stay with you until you die. You may suffer excruciating pain. You may lose your job or be driven from your home. You may even languish or die in a prison. And beyond that, you may just have to live with somebody that's hard to live with. Yet when you, when I, When we change in the ways I just mentioned, my experience is that you will find that you have become convinced that God is your refuge, that he is present, that he loves and cares for you, and that no one can do anything to you that he hasn't either willed or allowed. And that is security. That is peace. That is joy. You've changed. Not your circumstances, not the people around you, but you have. And it's this kind of change that brings true inward peace, unshakable joy, and the settled conviction that you are completely safe in God's hands. And so if you make it your aim to change while waiting for Christ's return, for God to bring about justice, or while living with the situation that you don't really want to live with, but you're stuck with. If you make it your aim to change, then you won't see the present suffering or the waiting for justice as a burden. You will see it as a gift. Maybe not at the beginning of starting to change, but as you change, and you begin to look back and see what you've gained And how you got it, you will see the troubles that you had to go through to get there as a gift. A gift that produced the changes in you that are so life-affecting, that upon experiencing those changes, you become forever grateful for having had to wait for Christ to return for justice to be done. To summarize verses 5 through 9, we see that God uses persecution to purify us so that we will be worthy of his kingdom. And we see that God will not only repay with affliction those who afflict us, he will give us complete and eternal relief when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. I want to point out several scriptures regarding Jesus' mighty angels and his flaming fire. God's mighty angels are spoken about in Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42. And here's what it says: The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we see in this portion of scripture that the angels that come with Christ remove the evil that is in the world. God's mighty angels are spoken of in Matthew 24, verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And in this passage, we see the angels gathering together the believers. Now, if we just put them in sequence, and they don't have to be, but they are nonetheless. Chapter 13 comes before chapter 24. If we just put them in sequence, to me there is a picture here that we can learn from. And then let's add, before we move on, God's flaming fire, spoken of in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. It's interesting to note that in verse 7, the literal translations of the words mighty angels, and if you have a uh, New American Standard Bible and you see the little number there and you look it up, or the little thing that says literal, it'll tell you this. The literal translation of the word mighty angels is the angels of his power. In other words, these angels are servants of God who use God's power on God's behalf to save and destroy. And here's the point I'm getting at. took a while to get there, I understand. But in biblical history, God's angels have often exercised his power to save by first subduing or destroying the enemy. Again, going back to the Matthew portions. The first one talks about the angels removing the evil out of the world. The second one talks about gathering together the elect, God's children. So, a classic example of this took place during the reign of Hezekiah when the king of Assyria came against Jerusalem to destroy it and conquer Judah. Hezekiah cried out to the Lord. God sent an angel in the night who struck down 185,000 In the camp of the Assyrians. Imagine. We're not talking about a hundred or a thousand, two thousand. We're talking about a hundred and eighty five thousand. The angel of the Lord came through that camp and struck down. This was a king who felt arrogant enough to come against Judah and Jerusalem, and he came. In fact, he had other skirmishes that he had to take care of before he got to it, but he got to it and God sent him home a mess. His sons took his life because he was such a mess. And one of his sons became king in his place. The point is, Jesus will re- will return with the angel angels of God's power And those angels will destroy evil and those who do evil. And it is the destruction of evil that will save those who belong to him from ever having to be harmed by evil again. And that is true salvation. Verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The retribution that God is dealing out to those who do not know him and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus is eternal destruction, verse 9. And this eternal destruction takes place away from the presence of the Lord. Now I want to point out that this eternal destruction is not annihilation. It is irrevocable. It is permanent, but it is not annihilation. And I just want to remind you that it's not annihilation because God created us to live forever. Yes, we are born. Life starts for us, but it is unending. And in that sense, we are like God. He has no beginning. He has no end. We have a beginning. We have no end. So it is not annihilation, because God created us such that once we're born, we live forever. And we can either live with him, or we can live away from his presence. I don't know if you recall this parable, but Jesus gives us a picture of this kind of destruction, this kind of retribution, as it were, when he describes the condition of the rich man following his death, in the parable about the rich man and the poor beggar Lazarus. And you can read that in Luke 16, verses 19 and 31. But the rich man was suffering. He was not in a good situation. And this was eternal. Therefore, those whose retribution is eternal destruction continue to live. But they live in a place that is void of God's presence and therefore empty of all good and of all hope of improvement. There are many who argue against the idea of hell, that a good God, a loving God, would never condemn people to such a cruel and hopeless existence for eternity. I don't know if you've thought about this, but For me, whether it is eternal fires or not, that's somewhat irrelevant, and I'm not arguing against the scriptures. But for me, in those conversations, what is the most horrible of all is to be outside or away from the presence of God. Do we understand that just God's presence alone puts a cap on evil. Our world may be getting worse, and there is no doubt about it. But God's presence still keeps a cap on evil. He makes the sun shine and the rain fall and righteous and righteous alike. He is merciful. He defends the widows and the orphans. He looks out for those who are oppressed. Remove that. The only picture that I've ever Come to that makes sense to me. Come up with your own if this one doesn't work. Is that away from the presence of God would be like being put into a prison with the worst offenders. And there is no bars, bars, no doors. It's just open rooms. You can, you're free to go anywhere in that prison you want. The guards are on the outside. There is no law on the inside. It's a lawless setting. The only law that is on the inside is the law of evil people trying to control or have power over each other. Imagine that. That's, to me, a picture of away from the presence of God. What would happen to God's kingdom if he allows people into it who in this life want and even demand to be treated well by those around them but in an unrepentant and repeated way treat those around them in selfish, unkind, hurtful and even cruel ways? Would not God's kingdom simply become what our earth has become? A little leaven leavens the whole lump? Jesus points out Does evil stay small? Has it stayed small in your life? Hasn't in mine. There must be a solution. And the solution is eternal destruction. Therefore God does deal out retribution to those who do not know him. Not because they couldn't, but because they wouldn't. This is not about people who've never heard, who have no knowledge, who are genuinely unknowing about God. And we can argue against that somewhat because of Romans chapter 1, which tells us that all creation reveals God. But this is about people who could know, but will not know. For example, Pharaoh who could have learned about God from Moses, had he wanted to, boasted in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I have these other gods. I know them. I worship them. I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. This is a man who saw miracles before his eyes. And yes, some of his own magicians were able to replicate but not all of them this is a man who saw his own people suffer because of these miraculous acts of god he could have gotten to know god if he wanted but he wouldn't another example comes from romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23 which tells us that there are those who know about god and the truth of god yet they suppress the truth, in order to live according to their own passions, their own lusts, their own fears, their own self-interest. And I would say those who persecute Christians could also come to know God if they would listen to the Christian message rather than persecuting and afflicting believers. The point is, God deals out retribution to those who do not know him because they could know him but refuse to know him. But the scripture also says that God will deal out retribution to those who do not obey the gospel. These are those who know God, who know the truth of God, who know how God wants them to live, yet refuse or carelessly neglect, obeying whatever part of the gospel that they are aware of. Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 provides a picture of religious people. These were religious Jews. A picture of religious people who fit this description. They know better. They they knew the truth. They read the scriptures, but they refused to live accordingly. And within this section of verses, we read these words, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Why his deeds? Because that reveals our values That reveals what we believe. That reveals our character. According to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will render eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. Could they obey? Yes. But they refuse to obey. God will render wrath and indignation. We read something similar in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, which deals with God's own people who he rescued from Egypt. And he brought them to the edge of the promised land. And these people, this first generation of Israelites coming out of Egypt, chose to disobey God by refusing to enter and take the promised land. They said, if we go in there, the men are going to get slaughtered. The women and children are going to be made slaves. We're not going in. We're not going to do this. And so God shut them out of the promised land and left them to die in the wilderness. And I would encourage you to read those verses, Hebrews chapter three, verses 13 or 17 to 19. Verse 9 of Second Thessalonians 1 These, that is those who do not know God and those who do not obey God will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Choices and behavior have consequences. I know we all know this. But I also know how easy it is to forget this truth when we are being tugged or tempted or lured or pushed in the wrong direction. In those moments, the things that often fill our minds have nothing to do with choices and behavior have consequences or what would Jesus do Or what does the word say? Our minds get filled up with self-preservation or self-gratification. And we forget the essential truths. Choices and behavior have consequences. Paul says this clearly in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. And this to me is, there's a number of them in the Bible, but this is one of those Thought provoking and even scary passages. Do not be deceived, it says. God is not mocked. You can't laugh in his face and just go off and do what you want to do. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's doubtful that any of us will ever persecute and afflict a Christian just because they are a Christian. I can't imagine any of us will even get close to doing that. So this portion may not be for us, but we could bring it down to us by asking this question. Do we mistreat anyone who isn't what we want them to be? Those who persecute and afflict Christians defend and justify their behavior. Do we defend and justify any measure or level of mistreatment toward any neighbor? Those who persecute and afflict Christians hold to a double standard. And I say a double standard because they don't want to be treated in the way they mistreat Christians. Do we hold to a double standard? One standard for others and one standard for myself. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We may never persecute another person who is innocent of all things, just because of who they are, Christian, African-American, We could go down the list. Many people have been persecuted in our world for more than just being a believer. We may never do that. But let us make sure that we love and seek the good of all our neighbors, including those who persecute and afflict us.